passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. In Jesus' name, amen. I mean, do we not end every single one of our prayers with those words, right? In Jesus' name, amen. But what do they actually mean, right? Lord, I pray that I get an A on this test, even though I didn't study. In Jesus' name, amen. If you drive an old car, right, before you turn the key over, if it's a clunker, Lord, please let my car start this morning, especially if it's like negative 30 below. In Jesus' name, amen. We go through these times where we're praying prayers in Jesus' name, but is adding Jesus' name to the end of what we're saying, make it then in Jesus' name. So what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name. This morning, we're going to start a four-part series on prayer. Um, I'm going to let the other pastors flesh out for us the content of prayer, but I'm going to be taking this morning and talk about how and why we pray. I think that there is a crisis for prayer in our church and in our culture. I think that there's urgency for this series. I mean, we look at the biblical example, the biblical commands, I mean, pray without ceasing, right? But how often when we look at our own prayer life, are we not immediately convicted and know that our prayer life is falling far, far short of what the Bible intends for us? I also think that this is important, that prayer is deeply rooted in the person and work of Jesus. When we understand prayer correctly, when we understand Jesus's role as an intermediary for us, I think that will help teach us to pray as we're praying to God the Father through the Son. Now, I'm very thankful for saints who have gone before us that have taught us well how to pray. John Munyon's work on prayer, John Owen, Thomas Watson, Jonathan Edwards, men that have taught us well how to pray. I'm also very thankful for the example of prayer that some of these saints have left for us. Let's think for a moment about Martin Luther. So Martin Luther was the great reformer of the 16th century, right? There was 95 theses. He posted them to the doors of the Catholic Church and said, this is it. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, by Scripture alone, that Scripture is our final authority and not a pope in Rome, right? So Martin Luther shook the world in the 16th century by doing what he did. And I think it's encouraging and also discouraging at the same time, but you'll see what I mean. When we look at what kind of prayer life did this man have, okay? So this guy was constantly in hiding for his life. And in 1530, he was in hiding in a castle. And there was a friend with him named Viet Dietz, okay? Viet Dietz was staying with him in this castle, which would be really cool to stay in a castle, right? A bed and breakfast in a castle? Imagine that, right, guys? Pretty cool. I'm sure some of you guys have even done that, because you can totally do that in Europe. Anyway, that's off track. All right, so he was staying in this castle, not a bed and breakfast moment, because he was hiding for his life. And Viet Dietz was staying with him, and Viet Dietz was overhearing Martin Luther's prayers every morning, Okay. So he was overhearing Martin Luther's prayers, and he wrote a letter to Martin Luther's best friend, Philip Melanchthon, describing what he heard in Martin Luther's prayer. And this is what he wrote. That there did not pass a day without at least three hours 
and those hours which were most fit for studying, which he had set aside for prayer. Look at this man's prayer life. He was praying for three hours every morning. Now, if you're a farmer, when you wake up in the morning, you go and you plant corn or soybean or whatever farming activities you have to do. If you're a theologian, you wake up in the morning and you study. That's your job is to study. But Martin Luther, instead of studying for the first three hours, instead of doing his work, he took three hours and prayed before beginning his work. And I think there's a good example here for all of us that we should devote ourselves to prayer in the morning before we begin our work too. That's a good example for us, right? I mean, good luck. Try and get into three hours. I dare you. No doubt that it was largely because of this man's prayer life that he was able to shake the world for the glory of the gospel and for the glory of Jesus Christ. I mean, if we prayed like that, imagine what we could do, right? Martin Luther said this, It's a good thing to let prayer be the first business of your morning and the last business uh, at night. That's from Luther's A Simple Way to Pray. He thinks it's a good idea that we should pray every morning and pray every night. That's definitely biblical, so I think we should follow his exhortation there. Now, more than the godly examples that we have of prayer warriors in church history, we have a supreme authority in Scripture that has taught us how and why we pray. First Thessalonians 5.17, just hear these out. Pray without ceasing. Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer. Philippians 4.6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. First Thessalonians 3.10, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face. Second Thessalonians 1.11, to this end we always pray for you. These are the words of Paul. Where did he get this kind of motivation to pray always? How is his prayer life so transformed? What did he believe in order to have a prayer life where he could say he was always praying? And I think he was following the example of his Savior, Jesus Christ. In Luke 18, verse 1, it said that Jesus taught his disciples a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. They prayed like they did because they believed in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that when Jesus died, he was purchasing their sins and he was purchasing the answers to the prayers that they would pray. Therefore, they could pray with confidence because of the completed and finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, prayer is deeply Trinitarian. All three members of the Trinity are at work when we're praying. We're being stirred up by the Holy Spirit to pray. And we're praying through the Son. We'll flesh out what that means, but that means that the Son is giving us access to God the Father. So we're stirred up by the Spirit. We're praying through the Son, and we're praying to God the Father. Let's look for a moment at Jesus' work as intermediary for us. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to be at verses 14 through 16. It says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. All right, so the story in the Old Testament that's behind this Hebrews 4 passage 
is particularly the Day of Atonement, okay? So there was a priest in the Old Testament, and there was a lot of priests, but in among this priesthood, there was a high priest. And there was a temple in the Old Testament, and the temple sat on Mount Zion. And what's in the background here is the Day of Atonement. See, the Day of Atonement was one day a year, and it, not just any priest could do this, but the high priest alone took the blood from a lamb and went into the Holy of Holies, the most inner sanctuary of the temple. And when he did, he took the blood of the lamb, he went through the veil, entered the Holy of Holies, and he took the blood and threw it on the Ark of the Covenant. Why did he do that? Well, what was inside the Ark of the Covenant, there was a couple things in there, but most important for our purposes was the Ten Commandments, okay? What he was doing when he threw blood on the Ark of the Covenant was he was saying, yes, we've sinned and broken your law, but because of the sacrifice that we've made, we're placing blood on it to show that our sins are atoned for, the sins that we've committed by breaking the law are atoned for, for the next year. Therefore, we can keep receiving God's blessings and we won't receive his curses. That's what they were saying on the Day of Atonement. Now, there's another temple. There is a temple in heaven where Jesus has gone as the high priest. You see, the earthly temple was a replica of a heavenly temple that up in heaven where God dwells, he's dwelling there and it's kind, and there's a heaven or, and there's a temple there that's a replica of this earthly temple and Jesus himself has gone there as the high priest. He's entered through the veil. He's entered into the most holy place for a great day of atonement, one where he brings not just the blood of any lamb, but his own blood to sanctify his people, to purchase their people, not their sins, not just for one year, but for all eter eternity, for past and present sins. And that's what's going on in the background here, that this is the kind of high priest that we have, one that has access to the heavenly throne room and the heavenly temple of God. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted and yet without sin. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. Has anyone ever gone through a time of heartache, just a really dark time? Maybe you suffered loss of some sort, something tragic or something happened that was just really dark for you. And you had a friend during that time that really came alongside you and tried to encourage you. They really tried. They meant well, but they had never experienced that kind of loss. They had never experienced that kind of suffering, and they weren't able to sympathize with you well, and maybe even you resented them for it. You maybe shut them out. You don't understand. You haven't been here. You don't know what I'm going through. But this is not the kind of sympathy that we have from Jesus. See, Jesus became like us in every way. He suffered. He experienced loss. He experienced the death of loved ones. He experienced hunger. Ultimately, in his human nature, he even experienced death. That this is the kind of Savior that we have, one who is able to identify with our weakness, that he's been tempted like we have. Jesus may even know temptation to a far greater extent than we do. Think about this. When we're tempted— we often give in to our temptations before we experience the full weight of that temptation, right? Think about it this way. If six hours is allotted for a certain temptation and you give in after two hours, you don't know how much harder that temptation would have been to resist for the remaining hours, right? But Jesus, having never given in to a temptation, experienced the full weight 
of every temptation without ever giving in. That's to the level Jesus understands temptation. Yet there was one crucial way in which he was not like us, and it is that he was without sin. Now because we have a high priest who cares for us, who can sympathize with us, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Verse 16 tells us that the purpose of drawing near to the throne is to receive mercy and help when we need it. See, Jesus came to give us mercy and help when we need it. When we go through those dark times, when we go through those times of suffering, where do we turn to? This passage makes it very clear that we have a high priest who's made it, who's able to sympathize with our weakness, and he wants to give us mercy and to help us out through our trials. That is why Jesus is intermediating for us, because he cares for us deeply, far greater than anybody ever will. Far, I mean, I love myself a lot. I love myself a lot. I take care of myself. I give myself nice stuff when I can afford it, right? You guys feel me? Some, one of you guys. All right. But God cares for me far more than I can even care for myself. Jesus loves you, right? All right, now let's turn for a moment, now that we know who Jesus is and his role as an intermediary for us, let's turn to a couple texts that show us what we can expect when we pray. Let's start with Matthew 21. 21 through 22. Now, before we dive into our text, we got to understand that there's a, there's a story about a fig tree that's in the background here, okay? So there's, everyone know the story of the fig tree? Two people. Awesome. All right. So there was a story of this fig tree, okay? And uh, I don't know anything about fig trees. I don't know if I've ever seen a fig tree. I tried a fig once, didn't like it. All right. So I read about this. I don't know. I just read about it because at this point, I was researching fig trees because I didn't know anything about it, right? All right, so there's a fig tree, and apparently they start growing their fruit before they start putting out leaves, okay? So if you see a fig tree and it has leaves on it, that means it has fruit that's been ripening on it, okay? That's what I read. So Jesus sees a fig tree that has leaves on it. Therefore, when you see that, you should expect that it's fruitful. So he walks up to this tree disappointed that there's leaves but no fruit on it, and he curses it, okay? And, I mean, Mark's account is helpful. He says it, when it cursed, it, it withered to its root. Whatever that means, it's just a shell of a tree that's left when he cursed it. Well, why do you do that? I think that's a great question. The story right before this in Matthew is the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. Mark is even more helpful with this in that he bookends the cleansing of the temple with the story of the fig tree. So he starts the story of the fig tree. Then Jesus goes and cleanses the temple. And then his disciples pass by the fig tree and they see that the fig tree has been cursed. And what Mark is doing is on purpose, he's uniting these two events. You see, when Jesus cleansed the temple, he walked into the temple and instead of seeing godly people offering godly sacrifices and all kinds of worship, right? It's supposed to be a house of prayer. He sees money changers, people that are exploiting the people and selling sacrifices for their own financial gain. This was a wicked and corrupt system and Jesus takes a whip and <laughs> throws them out of the temple. And then we see this story of the fig tree, which I think is an acted parable. I think that there's not just a cursed tree, 
a tree being cursed only for not having leaves, that he's actually telling part of a story. That the tree had the evidence that it should have had fruit, but it was deceptive, right? The tree at the end of the day was a hypocrite. It said it had fruit on it, but it didn't. Similarly, in the temple, we see hypocrites, people that have an outward sign of godliness, people selling sacrifices, right? But we're doing it from an inward bad motivation. At the end of the day, they were hypocrites in whitewashed tombs. One thing that I think is a little bit funny, you may not find this funny, but I think it's a little bit funny. Mark says that this happened on a Monday, that Jesus cursed the fig tree. Anyone else have Mondays like that? Is that a little bit humorous that one of the two punitive miracles of Jesus happened on a Monday? And we don't know when the other one happened. The other one was the, the pigs, demonic pigs episode, right, where they all died. Probably a Monday as well. It doesn't say it wasn't. I could understand that. All right, so Jesus is just uh, cursed this fig tree and his disciples see it and they're going, whoa, look at this fig tree. That's really cool. How did you do that? Which we can totally sympathize, right? If we saw our friend curse a tree and it withers and dies and we're like, that's cool. How did you do that? Jesus tells them. Matthew 21, verses 21 and 22. Truly I say to you, if you have faith, and do not now. Not only will you do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. For whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, I think here that the mountain that Jesus is referring to is the Mount of Olives, and the sea is the Dead Sea. And I think Jesus is using the story of the uh, withered fig tree to teach the disciples a lesson. Jesus is using the fig tree to teach the power of believing prayer. So Jesus is saying, when you pray is when you can move mountains. Now, perhaps you're thinking in the back of your mind, how literal should we take this? Should we be able to actually move a mountain? Right? Should we be able to actually pray, Lord, curse that tree and watch it wither and die? I mean, was it, after all, by faith that Peter walked on water? I mean, who's to say what's possible and what's not? All right, I think that's an awesome question, and we actually are going to answer that today, but I'm going to reserve that for our next passage, which says something very similar. Flip over with me to—before oh, I move on, verse 22. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This is important, that answers to prayer are contingent on Faith. It's only the prayers of faith that we can expect to receive an answer from God. Let's flip over to our next text. John 14, verses 11 through 14. This one's a little bit tougher, so I want you guys to stay with me. Believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. Jesus is saying, believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me. That I am who I say I am. Or else believe on the account of the works that I'm doing. So if you don't believe who I say I am, then at least believe that these miracles are happening that are real. And then just think about who has authority to do these kind of miracles. See his argument here? Believe in the—at least acknowledge the miracles can only be done by God. And then you'll understand who I am. Twelve. For truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father greater works than these we will do. And whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, 
I will do it. So here the Bible is teaching us, Jesus is teaching us that greater works than what Jesus is doing, we're going to be able to do. Okay? That's pretty cool. That, at the end of the day, this is very cool, and this is for all believers, that we're going to do greater works than Jesus. Okay? So this, you see how this is tying together with our Move Mountain discussion, right? If we believe that performing greater works than Jesus means being more miraculous than Jesus, I think we're all going to be disappointed, okay? After all, can you name anyone in history who's walked on water, fed 5,000 from a couple loaves of bread and a couple fish, fed 4,000, raised his friends from the dead, healed the blind if someone touched the edge of his robe, healed them, raised himself from the dead. If performing the miracles of Jesus to a greater extent than he did is what this passage is referring to, I think we're all disappointed, okay? No one in history is able to do that. So I don't think that's the right understanding of this kind of thing, okay? First off, the New Testament does teach us that some believers will be able to perform miracles, right? That there are miraculous gifts, but they're not given to everyone. That someone, some people can perform, have these miraculous gifts, okay? But this verse is teaching us that these greater works are something that all believers should be able to do. So I don't think it's referring to being more miraculous than Jesus. So, Andy, what does it mean to be performing greater works? My suggestion is this. What's new and greater that has never before been done in the history of the world is that nobody had ever been forgiven by faith in an already crucified, already risen, already reigning, and already indwelling Christ. All salvation up till now had been in anticipation of a coming redeemer. I think if we understand where we are in salvific history, that we are after the resurrection of Christ, I think that will help to understand what it means to do greater works than Jesus. If you're like, Andy, that's brilliant. That wasn't from me. I stole that from John Piper. Okay? So the greater works that you do, you will receive the Holy Spirit. No one had received the indwelling Holy Spirit before in human history, not even during Jesus's life on the earth. But now, as believers of the church age, we receive the indwelling spirit and are now united with Christ in a death like his. That I'm borrowing this language from Ephesians, that we have been raised with Christ and that we are in Christ given access through the Father. That because we are in Christ, we are raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places. I think this is what it means to perform greater works, that we have a greater unity with a resurrected and reigning Messiah and therefore have direct access in prayer to God the Father in his heavenly temple because spiritually we've been raised up there with Jesus. This new and great, what's new and greater than anything that the Old Testament ever states is that they never were able to worship in a united spirit with Christ. They weren't united with Christ's death and resurrection. I think that this is what's new and what's greater. Now Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So what does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? Jesus said, if you ask him anything in his name, he's going to do that for you. So how do you know that you've asked or how do you know that you've prayed in Jesus' name? 
As I was thinking about this, I came up with five observations and things to consider as you're praying to think about whether or not you are praying in Jesus' name. I think that there's more than this, but I think at least these five points are helpful in demonstrating the kinds of things we should be thinking about as we're praying, okay? So number one, what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? It means we're praying according to the riches of Christ. I'm borrowing this from Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. When we pray, it needs to be according to Christ. That means that when we pray, we are praying for God's glory and not for our glory. That we're trying to make God's name great and not our own name. Number two, I think praying in Jesus' name means praying to accomplish the continued work and mission of Jesus Christ. This is from John fourteen fourteen. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. See, it's Jesus who's here acting. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't quit interacting with the world, that he still has a work to complete on this earth, and that's to Ransom people from every tribe, tongue, and nation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's his continued work. As believers spread out over the face of the earth, they're sharing the gospel with every tribe, tongue, and nation. And Jesus is at work in his church to see that God's glory cover the earth the way that water covers the sea. Number three. Believing in Jesus' name means praying in faith. This is from Matthew 21, 22. And whatever you ask in prayer... You will receive if you have faith. Now, what is faith, okay? This is saying you have to pray in faith in order to receive things from God. And I think a lot of times when we think about faith, it's not the biblical definition of faith, right? For example, if you're single and you're trying to see if this... Say that you're a single girl and you're hoping this guy likes you, right? And you send him a text... He's not responding to your texts, and you're like, oh man, I don't know what this means. Is he ignoring me? Is he not? Right? I'm sure some of you guys, yeah, okay, some of you, all right. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Does he like me? Does he not? And then you go and you talk to your girlfriend, and she's like, just have faith that everything will work out. Is that what faith means? I don't think that's the definition of faith, right? Like, faith is not just hoping something will work out for the best. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 defines for us what faith is. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. It's saying here that there's things you can't see that you know are there and that's what you're having faith in. Uh, A poor example would be like, I know that my hand is made up of atoms. I can't see the atoms, but I know that they're there. That's what the kind of faith is. That something I can't see, but I know is there. That is the level of, that's what true faith is. Not something that we're hoping will come to pass that may not come to pass. But we're placing our faith in something that God has promised to come and pass. So like Jesus is coming back. That's something we have faith in because God has promised it and it's not contingent on anything. It's not something that might or might not happen. God is coming back. Jesus will reach the ends of the earth through his gospel and so ransom people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's a promise. We are sure and therefore we can have faith that that will come to pass. That we will experience an incredible unity with God in a far greater place, paradise, than Adam ever experienced. With a relationship with God that pales to anything that Adam ever 
experience. These are things that we have faith in because we are confident that they will come to pass because they are not contingent on anything we do, but are only contingent on the will of God who never changes his mind. That's praying in faith. Number four, praying in Jesus' name means praying to glorify Christ and make him famous. That means praying things that are in harmony with his character and attributes. Things that are in harmony with his character and desires. I don't know about you. Actually, I do. I'm sure you're just like me in this regard. I pray a lot of self-serving prayers, right? I pray and I, Lord, give me a better boat because I don't like my old boat, right? Self-serving prayer that doesn't do anything to glorify Christ and expand his kingdom, right? Or if you're a Hawkeyes fan, Lord, please let this be the year that, that we win the national championship for the first time since 1960, right? Do we not often pray things that are self-serving? Qu- quarterback of your NFL team t- drops back to pass, and you start praying, right? Lord, let this— That doesn't do anything to expand God's kingdom and God's mission on the earth. So let's think about that as we're praying in Jesus' name. I'm not saying don't pray for those things. I'm just saying that it may not be in Jesus' name if it's for your own personal satisfaction and not necessarily the glory of God, okay? Hear me? All right. Number five, and this one is the hardest one. Number five. Sometimes we're, we're trying to pray the will of God here, right? But sometimes we don't know what the will of God is. Sometimes we don't know how to pray. Sometimes God takes away the cancer. Sometimes he doesn't. How do you pray? Do you pray that God takes away the cancer? Do you pray that he doesn't? Because that seems weird, right? How do you pray in these times where you don't know how an event will unfold? That's an excellent question. I think here we need to take our cue from our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed a prayer that said, Lord, if it's your will, please let this cup pass from me. Right? He didn't want to die. Totally understandable. Yet he finished his prayers with the most important words. Yet not my will, but yours be done. I think it's important that we subject our prayers to God's ultimate plan and purpose. Yes, pray that God cures the cancer, but pray even more that God gets the glory through the cancer. So when you've prayed, I think that when you've subjected your prayer to praying things that are according to Jesus, that are according to giving God more glory, that are in harmony with his character, that we are praying to accomplish God's continued work and mission on the earth, and we've subjected our prayer to God's ultimate plan and not our plan, then I think we prayed in Jesus' name. Let's look at our last text. 1 John 5, 12 through 15. It says, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Two groups of people. People have the Son, people that don't. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. Simple enough. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. If you believe in the Son, then you know you have eternal life because the people that believe in the Son have eternal life. Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we are people of the life that we've been united to Christ, then if we ask him anything according to his will, he will hear us. 
And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked from him. John is here reiterating that it's not just any prayer, but it's the prayers that are according to his will, which he hears. Yes, God is omniscient. He hears everything that's not the kind of hear he's talking about. He's talking about hearing prayers that are only according to his will. If you're praying according to God's will, then you can expect God to answer. Similarly, if you're not praying according to God's will, then you need to think about whose will you are praying according to. And therefore, you can expect that God is not obligated to answer you, okay? God doesn't answer every prayer, but only those who are according to his will. He does promise that those who pray according to his will, God will accomplish. So if you're praying according to God's will, that means you're praying to accomplish God's work and God's will and God's mission on the earth. And God will equip you to that end that he may receive the glory. John Calvin said it this way. He said, he's speaking here of right and humble petitions and such as are consistent with the rule of obedience. For the faithful do not give loose rein to their desires nor indulge in anything that pleases them, but always regard in their prayers what God commands. I think that's a great warning for all of us. How many times we give loose rein to our desires? When we pray, we pray what we want. But he's saying here, don't pray for what you want. Pray ultimately for what God wants. Subject your prayers in obedience to carry out God's will in your life. That's how you pray. All right, let's go to part two. What is prayer for? What can we, why do we pray? First off, we pray because we believe that prayer changes things. When we pray, God acts in response. God created us to pray so to effectively complete his work in this world. Yes, okay, first off, I believe that God is sovereign and in control of everything. And I believe God created prayer as the means by which he completes his work in the world. God created us to pray. When we pray, he works. This is all part of God's will. God created a prayer to glorify himself. When we are praying, We are admitting that things are out of our control. But when we pray, we're also proclaiming that it is never beyond God's control, right? The Lord does not necessarily need our prayers in order to act. And he can and does act apart from our prayers. But God created us to pray and then act in response to our prayers for his glory, for the glory of his name, and for his fame. Number three, we also pray because we're stirred by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is stirring us up to pray according to God's will. So we need to be attentive to the Holy Spirit's moving in our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that I need to transform my own prayer life. So how do we do that? How do we have the prayer life like Jesus' disciples? How can we have a prayer, a life where we are always and constantly praying? And I got five considerations for to help us pray as the disciples do, that we're going to try and take some of the things that Jesus' disciples knew, apply them to our lives, and try to transform our prayer lives as well. Number one, I think we need to set aside time for pray, to pray. D.A. Carson said it this way, Much praying is not done because we do not plan to pray. 
We do not drift into spiritual life. We do not drift into disciplined prayer. We will not grow in in prayer unless we plan to pray. That means we must self-consciously set aside time to do nothing but pray. If you get a 15-minute break at work, maybe use your first 15-minute break at work to pray. Set aside some time during the day to do nothing but pray. And when you do, this leads us to number two, we need to take steps to impede mental drift. I mean, how many of us struggle with this, right? You set out with the best of intentions. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful day, which would be an awesome day to get on the boat. I wonder if my friend is out on their boat. They often post on Instagram if they're on their boat, looking up on your phone, texting, and off you go. And that's our prayer life, right? Take steps to impede mental I don't think that this has to be our prayer life. First off, we can vocalize our prayers. If we're praying out loud, we're less likely to drift as we pray. Pray when you're most alert, all right? If your plan is when your alarm goes off at six in the morning, if you hit the snooze, you have nine minutes before it goes off again, right? And if your plan is to, I'm going to pray for those nine minutes, okay? That is a terrible plan. You're going to hit the snooze button. You're going to say, Dear Jesus, all of a sudden your alarm's going to be going off again and you're going to be rushing out the door, okay? That's how that's going to go. Instead, wake up, take a shower, get ready, get some coffee. Amen? Then set aside some time to pray. Pray when you are alert. This one is one of my favorites. Take a prayer walk. If you know it's going to take you 15 minutes to walk around four to six blocks around your house— Use the prayer walk to kind of time your prayers to keep you constantly praying. Number three, this is important. Remember what you've prayed, okay? When you pray, remember what you've prayed. Martin Luther said it this way. But praise God, it is clear to me now that a person who forgets what he has said has not prayed well. In a good prayer, one fully remembers every word and thought from beginning to the end of his prayer. Remember what you've prayed. Write it down. Keep it in your mind so you can be praying for it again and again. Number four, sing your prayers. All right? Sing your prayers. That helps keep you vocalizing them. Um, Just be praying and try and sing your prayer. Don't record it because none of us want to hear it. Okay? It's not going to rhyme. It's not going to have meter. But try and sing your prayers. If you're musically talented, grab your guitar, grab a piano, something like that. Or if, if you're not musically inclined, you can still sing. Uh, grab some songs that we sing here on Sunday morning and sing them as prayers to God. Maybe grab a hymnal. They're like three cents on Amazon because everyone's selling their hymnals. And read through the hymn first, because not all hymns are doctrinally sound, okay? Just because they're in the hymnal does not mean they're doctrinally sound. Read through it first. If it is doctrinally sound, use that to pray to God. Or open to the Psalms and sing some of the Psalms back to God. There are hymnals that put all of the Psalms to music. That's a great way to pray, to sing your prayers. And it keeps you from drifting. It's hard to drift when you're singing, right? And... Number five, I think it's helpful if we understand the meaning of the word amen. And because Martin Luther devoted himself every morning to three hours of prayer, and I don't, I'm going to let Martin Luther have the last word here. 
He said, Finally, mark this, that you must always speak amen firmly. Never doubt that God in his mercy will surely hear you and say yes to your prayers. Never think that you are kneeling or standing alone. Rather, think that all of Christendom, all of them are standing and kneeling beside you, petitioning God together with one petition that God cannot disdain. Do not leave your prayer without having said or thought very well. God has heard my prayer. This I know as certainty and truth. For this is what amen means. And to that end, let's all stand and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us access to your heavenly throne room through the completed work of Jesus Christ. I know my own prayer life falls so short of what you expect and you desire of me. I pray that you help me apply my own findings in scripture this morning to my heart and life. Let us as a church transform our prayer lives. Let us be people that come before you regularly in prayer. How often is it that we'll let hours, days, weeks, maybe months go by without actually coming before you in prayer? Father, these things should not be and for that we repent, Father. I pray that you help us to pray as you commanded, to pray according to your will, according to your glory, Father, and so complete your work on this earth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.